Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Lit Fest Salons aim to provide provocative, relevant discussions in a dynamic and informal way. There's food and drink and good old-fashioned audience participation. On June 7th, 2012, the topic of the salon was literary versus genre deathmatch. The featured authors were Nick Arvin, Nick Brown, Connie Willis, and Robert Greer. Welcome, everyone. I'm Andrea Dupree. I'm with Lighthouse Writers Workshop, and I'm not supposed to stand by the speaker. Um, And welcome to the literary versus genre death match. As you can see, all our panelists have been working out at CrossFit. (laughs) Including me, I actually, on my way here, um, drove by a CrossFit gym, and I was really impressed, and that felt like working out. Um, So tonight, we really tried to build up the anticipation that there was going to be some fighting. And I don't know... There is. There is. There is. Um, So I'm going to start just by introducing everybody, and then the fighting can begin. And um, I'll even go off stage, which will be a relief to a lot of people. Um, So let's start with Nick, because he's right here. He grew up in Clio, Michigan. He earned degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of Michigan and a little place called Stanford. He has worked in automotive engineering, forensic engineering, and the design of power plants and oil and gas facilities. What have you done? (laughs) He is also the author of three books, In the Electric Eden, which is an excellent collection of stories. Is that on sale back there? I'm just curious. Sorry. Um, Articles of War and The Reconstructionist, which, which just came out. Amazing. His work has appeared in the New Yorker, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Salon, um, and the Lighthouse Top Secret blog. And he's been honored with numerous awards, including the Rosenthal Foundation Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Boyd Award from the American Library Association, and the Colorado Book Award, and fellowships from the Mishner Copernicus Society, which sounds really smart, and the, the... Isher, Isher Wood, Isher Wood, Isher Wood, see, I'm never going to get one of those grants, and the National Endowment for the Arts. He lives in Denver, Colorado, where he is on the faculty of the Lighthouse Writers Workshop, official bio, by the way, official bio, and um, next to him, Connie Willis, is the award-winning author of Doomsday Book, Passage, To Say Nothing of the Dog, Bellwether and Blackout All Clear. Connie has been awarded 11 Hugo Awards. Yeah. 11 Locust Poll Awards and 8 Nebula Awards. Her stories have an epic feel to them and range from laugh out loud funny to Deadly Serious. The first half of her newest novel, Blackout, was published in February 2010, with the second half, All Clear, published in October 2010. And we have that back there, right? Right. Yes. We have that back there. So everybody rush the stage at the end. 
um, and next to her, Robert Greer. Now, I'm not sure if this is current. You're a professor of pathology? So we have a really amazing panel here. Professor of Pathology, Medicine, Surgery, and Dentistry <laughs> at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center, where he specializes in head and neck pathology and cancer research. He also holds a master's degree in creative writing from Boston University and an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Miami University, his alma mater. He is and in his spare time, he writes, he writes these little things called novels. Um, he's the author and co-author of, of three medical textbooks. Maybe you've read them. Are those back there? And over 125 scientific articles. His novels include the C.J. Floyd mystery series. His short stories have appeared in dozens of national literary magazines. And he's also published a story collection, Isolation and Other Stories. Robert Greer. And not to be outdone. (laughs) Are you a doctor of anything? Yes, awesome. Nick Brown is the author of the novel Doubles and the story collection Flood Markers, which was selected as an editor's choice by the New York Times. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Harvard Review, Glimmer Train, and Epic, among many other publications. A professor of English at the University of Northern Colorado, he will be the John and Renee Grisham Writer-in-Residence at the University of Mississippi for next year. And I heard Gossip on the Porch that you will be living in Richard Ford's old house. Well, he's in the house now. <laughs> and he's, I, I hope he's gone. <laughs> so up in two weeks. He's stepping right into those, those shoes. He doesn't know you. <laughs> so thank you, all of you, for being here tonight. And I, I think this... Um, this entire topic is of interest to all of us and maybe is a a false dichotomy but we shouldn't say that because everybody's here for the bloodletting so let's give you each a chance to give your um, 10 cents and and we'll just ask questions and people can jump in and we'll start with with you Nick or do you want to start with Connie (laughs) I'm, I'm happy to start Nick can start um, how to start? Uh, <clears throat> I think I actually first proposed to Andrea the the, the idea for this um, salon, and uh, it it came to me in part because I've I've been thinking about the difference between literary fiction and genre fiction, whether there's a difference, and um, uh, in part because I've I've been my my, my genre background is in sci-fi. And that's part of why I'm really excited to have Connie here. Um, and um, I, I read an enormous amount of sci-fi when I was when I was younger, um, and then I got out of it for years and years. But recently, I've I've, I've sort of been bringing it back into my life um, and and thinking about it more. Um, and I taught uh, a reading class here at the Lighthouse last fall uh, on sci-fi, and you know one of the things we talked about in there was you know, what are the differences between sci-fi and the other kinds of fiction that you write, read? Um, and and one of the things I, I did in that class was to try to 
have a mix of writers who are coming at sci-fi from from sort of the genre background, the kinds of writers who who you know publish in the sci-fi magazines and um, publish under the sci-fi imprints and sort of come out of that background, versus also having writers um, that we were reading who who came to it from the literary direction, uh, like Michael Shaven. Um, and uh, and you know, sort of talk about how coming at that, uh, coming at the genre from those different directions. What what kind of difference do you get out of that? Um, and uh, you know, I, I guess I I I think the way I, I would I want I want to sort of introduce myself in terms of this topic um, uh, comes out of the the uh, the sci-fi issue of the New Yorker which just came out a week ago. Um, it, had, uh, it, has, it has these little essays by, um, by some of the well-known... The field. What's that? I'm sorry, by people who hate the field. Well, <laughs> 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 um, there, there was an essay, a short essay in there by China Mieville, um, who's, who's one of the writers we read in, in my class last fall. And... Um, one of the things he talks about in his essay is, you know, people ask him, how did you get into this? Um, and they, you know, they're, they're kind of baffled, like, why would you be writing these stories about um, stuff that, that's made up, that, you know, it's not anchored in the real world. Um, and he, the point he makes is that, you know, everyone loves this stuff when they're six years old. You know, everyone is into magic and dragons and... Um, and robots, yes, and spaceships. Like that's that's what you love when you're six years old. And and he says, you know, the real question is, why did you get out of it? Um, you know, the, he he just sort of stayed with it. Um, and and that was that was kind of it, it was interesting to me to, to think about. Well, why did I get out of it? Because I I did stay with it for a long time. Um, and I, um, you know, I I was an avid fan of, of sci-fi and, and fantasy um, through high school and into college. Um, and then I think I would blame, I would blame um, writers like Jorge Luis Borges and Calvino, um, these writers who are kind of on the, the th- threshold, but people are never quite sure how to classify them, I think. And then there are also writers who, who are, for whatever reason, classified as literary um, Writers like um, who, are, who are contemporary writers like uh, Stephen Milhauser, um, George Saunders writes these stories that have sci-fi elements, um, and uh, a couple others whose names I'm not thinking of right now, but who um, who I really got into. And you know, you go to the bookstore to get those books, and they're on the shelf next to whatever Richard Ford, and um, and you end up, you know, I, I and I, you know, I was taking classes in college that kind of bring you into the, the wider world of literature. And I started picking those up. Um, and I just, I sort of drifted away from the sci-fi and really didn't read it for years and years. Um, and so I was trying to think about, you know, why, why did I make that shift? What was it that, that the literary, quote-unquote literary fiction was, was appealing to me that, that maybe I hadn't been finding in the sci-fi before that? Um, and I think part of it is that, that for me at least, um, you know, the really great literary fiction, well, 
I feel like you need to make all these subtle distinctions. There, there, are, there are great books that just sort of transcend genre. Um, but then there's, there's stuff that's great within its genre. I think great literary fiction tends to, for me, really works at the heart and gets at the heart. Whereas sci-fi, for me, um, gets to the mind a little more. And so they kind of come to those, from those two different directions. The stuff that's really great does both, which is a crazy trick. It's, it's like a boxer who can hit you with both hands at the same time. Um, and, uh, but, and so I, I think part of the reason I've come back to sci-fi recently is that I've, I've found myself missing that part. Like a lot of early fiction doesn't, doesn't really deal in big ideas and doesn't grapple with things that work in my mind in the way that sci-fi does. And I think that's part of why I find myself coming back to it recently. Um, so there, there's a death match going on in my mind right now. <laughs> um, and I'm, now I'm going to hand over to the real expert on sci-fi. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Well, uh, what I was muttering to him uh, earlier was that this issue of the, the New Yorker was somewhat problematic because it's devoted to science fiction, but at least three of the people who wrote articles despise science fiction and have rejected it. So um, I guess that's a fair and balanced kind of uh, picture of it. Um, I basically got into science fiction because it just got so much respect. And I found out that, that people admired you so much more if you were in science fiction. And I, and I bring as my, as my sterling example... Can you hold that up for me? My sterling... This is the, the Bradbury obit, a terrible thing. But he got a full page in the, in the New York Times, and that's, that's cool. That shows that, you know... But, wait, wait. But the headline here at the bottom is... Up from the depths of pulp and into the mainstream. <laughs> the depths of pulp. Yeah. So I think that's part of the part of the difficulty is that uh, that science fiction is frequently considered the depths. I had no idea. Um, actually, I had a very strong idea because because um, science fiction writer as a science fiction writer. Um, when I introduce myself to people, the first thing they say is, oh, I have a kid who likes that. <laughs> and then the second thing they say is with that, it's really a, a bizarre intonation. What on earth are you doing writing science fiction? Um, so, so there is a certain problem. And I, I think one of the problems is, and this is, goes for other kinds of genre writers too, not just science fiction, um, is that genre writing tends to be judged by the worst examples that it has to offer. And as, as witness uh, Margaret Atwood's article in here, in which she compares her own work to a horrible, trashy pulp story that from the 50s, you know, not to anything worthwhile. Um, and then compares herself quite favorably to that, which all of us can compare ourselves quite favorably to that in or out of the field. So I, I think that's a problem, whereas literature tends to be judged, uh, and mainstream tends to be judged more by the best examples. And trust me, if mainstream were judged by the fi Fifty Shades of Grey's and the, and the Da Vinci Codes, they wouldn't be doing too well either. So um, I think that's, that's one of the things that I, I think is interesting. And I'd also love to get into the whole idea of that to me genre is it's a totally fake distinction it was invented by publishers 
and it wasn't invented till the 20th century. And before then, you don't see people uh, criticizing Shakespeare and saying, well, you know, some of the times he writes really good uh, modern realistic stuff like Richard III, but every once in a while he wanders over and does The Tempest, and there's no... There's, or Midsummer Night's Dream, there's really nothing like that that happened back then. And then in the 20th century, they found that one of the ways to sell more books was to target them to people, specific people. If you like this, you'd like this. And then began um, sort of a domino effect of tumbling them into sections in the library and sections in the bookstore and sections in people's minds uh, that had never really existed before. So I, I'd love to get into that aspect of it, too. <clears throat> How many people in here are professors? Okay, I'm, I've got two stories to tell. I'm actually, I'm actually one myself, um, but not in the, in perhaps the real sense. So I'm a professor at a medical school, and that's not really a professor. Okay. It's more so, real than creative, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah, so, so um, I'll have, I'll tell. Here's a, here's two stories. First story, I, I was, I'd been at CU 10, 15 years. I'd written some, I'd written some short stories. Uh, I probably had 10, 15 stories I'd written. And so um, a friend of mine said, why don't you come down here and, and, and uh, try and teach? And at that, I think at that time, I, I had, fin- I had a, ma- a master's degree in creative writing from Boston University. So I said, okay. So I sent my stuff down to Boulder. Now on it, it says Robert Greer. DDS, MD, PhD, Masters in Creative Writing. <laughs> okay. Somebody sent my stuff back in Boulder. To this day, I don't know because I never set foot down there in the English department again and said, you're not qualified to be, you know, down here. And I said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> you're not qualified to be judging me, is the answer. Okay. So... It left a bad taste in my mouth for the academy. So I think a lot of our problems arise with these distinctions, not necessarily from the publishers, but that's, as Connie said, that's where it started. But it seems to be precipitated by elitist academics who somehow think that there's this great um, chasm uh, between genre writing and literary fiction, which I find preposterous. So here's the second story. Um, this week, there's a guy named Hank Fennell, who was the uh, chairman of pathology, the vice chairman of pathology at, the, at CU's medical school for years. He's now 94 years old. And um, we're having the um, annual residence dinner tomorrow on the, at the Anschutz campus to sort of honor the residents as they all finish their, their specialty programs and go on off into life. And so they, uh, they wanted us, some of us who were uh, trained by this guy, Hank Fennell, um, to say something about him. And so I tried to think about a story, and um, I said, you know, I've, I thought about this, and it would be appropriate for tonight. For tonight. So I wrote this and sent it on in um, for the people to talk about tomorrow. In, in the mid-1980s, um, uh, there was a young assistant professor at, at, at CU in the medical school named Ken Schroer. 
And at that time, I was, I had, was already a professor. And so Ken and I were working on um, viruses and cancer. And at, at that time, uh, people were starting to stumble on the fact that cervical cancer is caused by a virus. It's caused by a human papillomavirus, the same group of viruses that cause warts. And there are about almost 200 of those viruses known now. Of the viruses that are carcinogenic, um, they, are, they are disproportionately in, in their small numbers. So we just give them numbers, one through 200 or so. So numbers 6, 11, 16, 18, 31, 33, 51, 52, 65, 67, and 70 are responsible for causing cancers, some more so than others. They often are, are, or, are viruses that are epitheliotrophic. That means they go after epithelium. They go after stuff that lines things like your skin, and like the mucosa that lines your eye or the mucosa that lines your mouth or the mucosa that lines the cervix in females. So that's what happens. The virus goes after the cervix, ends up causing genetic aberrations, and ends up giving you cancer. So I went, we, Ken Schuer and I went to the, this meeting in San Diego, and we had found that in oral, I'm a head and neck pathologist, we'd found in oral mucosa atypical cells in there that we call coelocytes. Those are the cells that, that you know that the virus has been there. That's the footprint of the virus. Back then, we didn't have all these recombinant DNA methods. We didn't know how to identify that virus well. And we were using something called an immunoperoxidase stain. And so that stain would stain the virus, and we, I'm sorry, it would not stain the virus, it would stain the, the capsid antigen of the virus as it incorporates itself into the cell. That lets you know the virus has been there, and you can therefore extrapolate and say it's causing, it, it, it can cause cancer. Well, we were finding this in the oral cavity, the area that I work in. There's a guy named Harold Zierhausen who had found it in the cervix in women. And so we went and presented our stuff at a meeting in San Diego at a big pathology meeting, and we were literally booed off the stage because everybody was aware that the virus was perhaps a culprit in cervical cancer, but nobody believed it had anything to do with oral and head and neck cancer. Now remember, all these linings are the same. They're all either mucous membrane linings, which we call mucosa, all the ones, mouth, eyes, vaginal tract, or skin. That's a lining as well. So Ken, being young, <laughs> Ken Schwer, was crestfallen. I was a little bit more seasoned, and I knew how conferences that, like, like that work, and people get up and criticize you. And so in the audience, they said our stuff, was, we were looking at artifact. There was nothing there that was real. We came back from the meeting, and I saw this guy, Hank Fennel, who was much older than me at the time. I said, Hank, this is really bad. We come back, they, 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 you know, they've chagrined, I mean, they've made fun of our work. They say it's, it's lousy and poor science, and we're identifying artifact, and this is an abstract. So we, we presented it as an abstract, and then we're going to turn it into a real scientific paper. So we said, we'll never get it published, because, you know, all the, guy, all the big guns are there. They're not going to publish our stuff. Gonna, we send it in, they'll just reject it. So Hank said, was your research done well and accurate? And I said, yes, we certainly did it well 
and accurate. And he says, well, here's one thing that small-minded people don't understand. He says, what you're identifying is you're finding something that affects mucosa. And mucosa is just mucosa. So what he meant by that is it doesn't matter if it's lining your cervix, your eye, whether it's the skin or it's lining your mouth. The virus doesn't care about that. It goes after whatever it wants to go after. The end of the story ends here. Ken Schwer, the junior professor who was with me who presented our paper, is now the chairman of pathology at Stony Brook in in New York. And Harold Zurhausen, who first identified this virus in the mucosa in the cervix, and then we followed by finding it in, in the oral cavity, won the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology in 2008 for identifying human papillomavirus in, in the human cervix. So mucosa is just mucosa. <laughs> writing is just writing. <laughs> So you can either write or you can't write. And it's about as simple as that. You can write about frogs on the moon or you can write the great American novel. But as far as I'm concerned, it's just writing. There's no distinction between the two. So um, (laughs) I, I wish I had a story about being an astronaut. I could make one up. Um, so the last book I read, which I finished last night, was uh, Nancy Drew's The Mystery at the Ski Jump. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I, I really do like Nancy Drew books. They're surprisingly uh, fun. But, you know, I, that's not the only thing that I read, right? And I read... I, so I read Nancy Drew because I've been reading Faulkner before that, right? And I just felt like I got to cleanse my palate or something, you know? <laughs> and so <clears throat> I've been thinking about why we read different genres, right? And uh, there are different ways to enjoy different types of storytelling, right? Uh, I read all those Harry Potter books, right? I loved them. I don't recommend my students turn to those for um, excellent prose, but there's a certain, you know, form of enjoyment there. Um, And so I've been thinking about genre, and some of these small essays in The New Yorker address uh, this fact that with, with different genre writing, we turn to it because of a known quantity, that it's prescribed payoff is part of its appeal, okay? And that is, in a way, why I read, I love reading mystery novels, um, and that's often why I turn to it. I, I have an idea of what the payoff for me is going to be. And that's not the situation I'm in when I'm reading what is usually considered um, literary fiction, right? And so I've been thinking about this. uh, I think about the contract between the writer and the reader often. And it seems like the contract involved in a reader and some sort of form, you know, that's called literary, uh, is a more risky contract. Um, And that's not a contract that's necessarily going to pay off, right? Uh, But 
I have this feeling about books sometimes, and I bet you do too. Sometimes I buy books that I want to read, but I just, I'm not like, I'm not in shape to read it yet, you know? <laughs> it's like on my bedside table, and like every now and then the night I'll hit, and I'll be like, yes, I am going to read Moby Dick now, you know? And that contract that I've just made with that book is a riskier contract. And sometimes riskier contracts have more complicated payoffs. And so that has nothing to do with what's, what constitutes genre and not genre, as uh, Robert just pointed out. Um, because good writing is good writing. And it is unfortunate that I think genre is, uh, gets a bad name because a lot of it can work um, because of these lower reader-writer contract expectations. What I mean is, if I just want a really basic mystery, well, I can read Nancy Drew, and I'm going to get it, you know? Um, and uh, so different storytelling has different worth. The primary difference for me and what I think of as genre that gets a bad name and not is that writing that I read, regardless of, quote, genre, I don't want the prose to simply be a vehicle to deliver plot. I want the prose to be an event in and of itself while also delivering plot. I want plot like the rest of you, you know? Um, but good writing, whether it's genre or not, I think the prose is an event, too. Um, I, when I think about science fiction writing... I often feel like I just wouldn't be smart enough to, to write it, you know? Um, and, uh, I, you know, with detective stuff, um, I love looking at detective fiction in, in how mystery is, is constructed. But I wonder, I want to ask Connie a question. If you think that the intellectual and imaginative um, requirements of science fiction are more demanding than me writing about people in love in a living room. <laughs> I think um, I think that's a very really good question. I think it's hard to answer. I guess what I would say is that I think having written science fiction for a long time, I think that the worlds that science fiction writers create are often totally imagined. And I think that the worlds that mainstream modern, or I guess by mainstream I mean modern realistic fiction, create are totally imaginary. And Dickens, um, Dickens' London is just as strange and never existed as as uh, Ray Bradbury's Mars. And I think that one of the things that tangles us up is the idea that some things are realer than other things. The writer uses his imagination to construct, um, you know, there, there are always points of connection, and there are points of connection with the real world, particularly with the real emotional world, in both um, genre and in um, mainstream fiction. And I guess I would say that you're right about genre. Frequently, the contract is very simple. I want elves, dwarves, a dragon, a ring, and I want everybody to get home safely. And, and you can get that in a lot of books. And if that's really all you want, there's lots and lots of books that will satisfy you. Um, I love Agatha Christie, and I love Dorothy Sayers. I like almost no other 
writers of mystery because what I want is not the simple they find out who did it. I want to find out lots and lots of other stuff. I want to see how society works and I want to see how people interact and how they fall in love and I want to see all the games that Agatha Christie plays where she halfway through the book will suddenly rise up and stab you in the eye when you didn't see it coming at all um, and does it in book after book after book in different ways. So so yeah, what you want from a book and, and, and that's based on the points with reality. I think you know, and and people are frequently criticized at the places where it doesn't match reality. But I think that just because it reach, matches reality in some places doesn't mean that it matches them in all. You would not, if you could go back in time to Dickens' London, you would not find Dickens' London anywhere. He made it up in his head. Totally, the way people act, the way people think, the way people are, the way stories work out, the way the world works, all that's in Dickens' head. And, um, and the same as in a mystery novel or, a, or a, any other genre work. Um, so I don't think one is harder to write than the other. I think it's all an act of imagination. And, um, and I think we fool ourselves by thinking that if we're... It, it, the problem with genre is you frequently have to explain a lot more, especially with science fiction. Um, with mystery, the problem is you have to explain things down to the last detail because you need to know where the fork was. That's the main thing. And you can't let anyone know that the fork is, ex is important, so you have to explain everything besides the fork or else they'll notice the fork. Uh, so, so that's the problem of mystery. <laughs> the problem of science fiction is that you have to explain everything. I mean, if I say she picked up the phone, you all know what that means. And you all know what will hap you know what will happen when someone picks up a phone. But if she's picking up a Gleeblorf, I have to explain everything <laughs> about that. And it takes a lot longer and it's much more complicated. So so that tends to intimidate that part of science fiction tends to intimidate people, I think. And the and but the science is all made up too, so <laughs> people need to keep that in mind. But I don't think any of it is I mean, all of them if you're talking about research. All writing demands research, and um, I frequently am flinging mainstream books across the the uh, room. And those those things in the style section of the New York Times on Sunday, the relationship pieces <laughs> where they talk about their lives, which are really pathetic lives, and and uh, and they're true. They're all true. You have to be in. They they. You, you cannot write that unless you're writing a true piece about yourself. I throw those across the room because they're not realistic either. So the, they're clearly made up in someone's head. This is not really what happened actually at all. So I don't know how to answer that question. I got. Okay, you try. <laughs> is there a question I'm answering? <laughs> Is it harder to write something uh, yeah. totally imaginary, something lovers in a room or yeah. frogs on the moon? The frogs there are on the no moon. frogs on the moon, by the way. Yeah. No air. <laughs> <laughs> you do need to know that. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, so I'm, I'm dabbling in writing a science fiction novel right now, and I'm really struggling with what you talked about in terms of, like, what do you have to explain? What you don't have to explain? Um, so that that's definitely a, like that's an issue I haven't had to deal with in my fiction before. But I've like in thinking about this panel, I've also been thinking about how you know there there isn't just literary fiction, science fiction, mysteries, and romance. Um, when you when you start think when I start thinking about genres, like there there are there are a lot of genres where you 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 can come into a book 
feeling like it's in a certain genre and you have certain expectations for it. You know, there, there are war novels, which I wrote a war novel. Um, you know, there are... Romantic comedies. Romantic comedies. Um, sports novels. I was in sports novels. You know, you know it's supposed to follow the plot outline of the natural. You know. <laughs> What's that? Chicklet. Chicklet, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, lots of others that I'm not thinking of right now. But you, there are lots of kinds of books where you come in and you have you have some expectations about what the story is going to do and how it's going to do it. Um, even even you know something like postmodernism. Um, you know, you sort of there are certain books you come into them. You you know that at some point the author is going to be a character in the book, and um, and you know. Part of part of reading the book is is seeing how they they do the things that you know that you know they're going to do these things, but the, part of the interesting part is how are they going to do it? Um, and so in it, yeah, it's all it's all at some point it's this struggle to to squeeze things out of your brain, and whether whether you're trying to find details in a in a living room in a you know you're writing a love story in a living room and you're just trying to find details in the living room that are actually interesting you know i think can be just as difficult a struggle as um create you know making up a living room on mars um so it's you know the the act of imagination if it's if it's done right is always a struggle can can i add something i'm sorry after my previous garbled answer um the other thing i think that that plays a part is that i don't i don't think audience expectations are necessarily bad. I mean, um, I think there are certainly certain highly defined forms in which you have very little wiggle room at all, like, say, the romantic comedy or the sonnet. You know, and with the sonnet, you're working with a, a very enclosed space and only so many words, and it's got to do something in the first eight and the last six and so on. And in a romantic comedy, they better get together at the end, and you know that they'll hook up with what appears to be the wrong guy, but then it will turn out that it's the right guy, and that the reason it's the right guy will be revealed at some point. I love romantic comedies. I find them some of the hardest things to write in the world because the audience expectations have boxed you into such a narrow little space. But if you can manage to write a great... Um, romantic comedy in which you not only meet all audience expectations but surprise the heck out of them at every step along the way that's really an achievement that's like writing writing a great sonnet so i just think the fact of expectations versus not expectations isn't the only thing to take into account yeah i've I've never really thought much about um audience expectations and the reason is is i started writing uh, to entertain myself and so, so yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm the audience. So I, I really didn't think much about the, the expectations. Um, in that sense, to get back to the literary versus genre issue, two years ago I wrote a, a book. Well, um, I actually wrote it three years ago, but two years ago this book it's called Spoon won the Colorado Book Award for yeah, not for the Colorado Book Award for literary fiction. So that means it must have been somebody decided it was literary fiction. Okay. That's a, it's a good book. It's a really, I think. Right. I mean, it's, right. it's a good. And I, yeah, who am I to say? But the, this right. panel of experts says <laughs> it, they said they said this is this is the best book that's out there in literary fiction in Colorado. So they gave it that award. So that's, it is. I was going to say it's a good book. I in, in the sense that it's it, it's it's a 
very entertaining book. It's very literary. It's got all those things in it. It can't hold a candle to one of my complex thrillers. I mean, it can't hold a candle in terms of the complexity, the language, the suspense, any of that to to the last two um, mysteries are, are uh, political thrillers I've written. Period. It, there's no way. There's no way. So it, if you read both of them, you would say, wow, this one book has so much plot and so many backstories and takes in so much human emotion. And the other book has this literary component to it and this lyrical language and this and this plot that deals with something that's heavy in the American West. It has all of these sort of traditions in it, but it's not, in my judgment, as the writer, anywhere near the book one of those mysteries is. Without question. And I wrote them. So I'm going, I'm going, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? If you ask me, what, you're not ever supposed to ask what's your best book. Your best book is always the one you're promoting. So I want everybody to rush, rush out there and buy a stride of pink horse. That's the best book. Okay. So, um, so that, I mean, that's in, 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 in the parlance of, of sales. So I just don't don't understand, you know, the the dis- distinction again. When I one is really a classic literary novel, and the other ones aren't, and the other ones are, if if you want to say better, they're better books. If you if you take in all the things that are supposed to make up a book, the fifteen things they do it better. No, because it's not it's not literary it's not literary fiction. It's it's a it's a you know it's a mystery. <laughs> well, um, in the issue of the New Yorker, maybe it wasn't it, it was not this one, but maybe the one before the March twenty eighth one. Yeah, uh, Arthur Crystal had an essay that addressed a lot of what we're discussing and in it he quotes Lee Childs as saying that the thriller is why humans invented storytelling that's true well I don't know I mean that's what I want to talk about because well you notice that the literary Knicks have circled the genre writers and they will die I'm sorry we'd be in a lot of trouble so what do you Well, this is what I thought about. (laughs) I took a class (laughs) when I was a student in my astronaut training um, on Native American stories, right? Which seemed almost plotless, and they were all terribly confusing. um, And they all just seemed to be sort of circling these innate mysteries of human existence, mortality, nature, uh, time, right? And uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about maybe that's why we tell stories, to try to find a way to think about things that we can't figure out. I took this class with Carl Krober, who's the older brother of Ursula K. Le Guin, (laughs) which is sort of strange. But... um, He was awesome. He had really bad teeth, but um, he was a million years old. Anyway, I want to talk about the thriller. Is that why we tell stories? 
Why did you say yes immediately? I, I, I said yes because um, Anthony Burgess did um, a, a movie called Quest for Fire a long time ago. Anthony Burgess of Clockwork Orange. And, and in it, uh, th- these are, you know, well, Quest for Fire should tell you what, at what point in our history this is. Th- this tribe has fire. They do not know how to make fire, but they have fire through an accident. And, so, and then it goes out. And they have to, three of the tribe members have to set out looking for it. And all kinds of things happen to them. They're chased by things. They kill a mastodon. They meet a girl. They do all these cool things. And, and then, it's a much better book than it sounds like. I'm sorry. But, but, and this is, and this is a, this is man at a time when almost no language. Very, very, very minimal language. Okay. So, and which Anthony Burgess carefully did in the movie. It's really a great movie. Uh, anyway, so so then, and the two two of the guys are quite active. One is the one who falls in love, and one is the one who kills the mastodon, and and kind of takes the lead and leads the group. And they not only find fire, but they find out how to make fire and move the tribe forward in this thing. And, but then when they come home, it's the third guy who didn't play much of a role at all in the adventures, but was always there kind of there and then he sits down at the campfire and tells this story with almost no words using a lot of you know kind of for the mastodon etc and conveys conveys the experience of something that happened to them to people that it didn't happen to and that's why I said that, because I think that one of the, the first purposes of story is to broaden our experience through what, what happens to us is very limited, and we're very curious. Like, if someone comes home without an arm, we really naturally want to know, whether we have language or not, we want to know what happened to that arm. And we, we're pretty sure it's something interesting, you know? And so... And I think, and I think so. I think storytelling was invented for you know, excitement and interest and curiosity and all those things. So, but also for the bigger questions, because from the beginning, we've been really curious about the big questions. What are we doing here? How long will we last? (laughs) What happens later? All those things. So I I don't know. I just, that's why I said it. Can I follow that up just with, uh, you know, if somebody has lost their arm, maybe they don't want to hear the story again about it. Maybe they want to read Nancy Drew and go to the ski jump, right? And so I want to toss out the idea of what is escapism and what role that plays. And I don't know how I became the moderator, but these are <laughs> questions I have been thinking about. <laughs> Nick, you want to start? Yeah. What is escapism? <laughs> Facebook. So is is the question does does escapism is escapism what we're looking for when we're reading? Or, yeah, I don't, you know, or is when people talk about genre, we often hear people say, say it's "Yeah, it's yes. escapist, yes. right? right?" And you know, when you're reading. Uh, John Updike, like, we're not a, it's sort of escaping into our own dirty, you know, yeah. bedroom, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a different, I don't yeah. know, I, I just yeah. want to put it out there and talk about is escapism what genre does? Yeah, or not, or well, I guess one thing that brings to mind for me is what, you know, people, people sometimes say they want to read something that doesn't make them think too hard. Mm. And, um, 
right that, i mean that that i mean that does seem to me to be what they're looking for is is escapism but that's um i don't yeah i don't know what, what do we what do you have to do to write a story that doesn't cause anyone to think too hard um do you, maybe uh, <laughs> are you asking for advice or? I don't, I don't, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I People like to read them. Maybe, that's maybe that's what I should be writing. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean that. I mean, there's escapism in the sense of it doesn't. It's it's following a kind of formula, and and you can just follow along. Um, but then I think there's also a different kind of escapism, which is which is writing that that brings to life a world um, that you, you don't know and that and brings you sort of fully into that world. Um, and that, that can, you know, that can be hard work, like for the reader. You're talking about you know, that contract, you know, there's, there, there are different levels of, um, of engagement between the reader and writer. And it, um, so there's there's that kind of escapism too, where the the writer is really bringing a lot to the table and and creating a world and um, you know that that takes a lot of imaginative power and it takes a lot of imaginative power on the part of of the reader to to engage in that and that's you know so that's the kind of escapism that you get in Moby Dick as well. So I, I, you know, I think escapism tends to be used as a word that to denigrate things, but um, I think I think good fiction. Um, you know, brings you to a, a different place. Sometimes it's not even a, a place per se. It's it's a, a different way of thinking. It puts you in somebody's head. That's um, a, a kind of escapism. Um, and you know that that can happen regardless of genre. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have two things to say. One is that C.S. Lewis was, of course, always accused of being an escapist. And his answer was, we live in a prison. Who would not want to escape? <laughs> Which is true. We live in the prison of our own pretty narrow experience and our own kind of narrow views of things. And, and fiction gives us a chance to escape that. But I also think that, I think, you're right, escapism is almost always, it's never used as a positive term, you know. And yet, to escape into someone else's head or, or to, to another culture or another time that's a really positive experience it lets you magnify the number of lives that you live and that your outlook on things it broadens them and everything um, but to, since Bradbury's been on my mind quite a bit here these last few days um, there's a little story little bitty story by uh, Bradbury called a miracle of rare device I read it first when I was probably 15 it's a little nothing story about these two ne'er-do-wells who are out and they're, they've got a, a car and a sign by the side of the road in the middle of the desert, middle of no place. And um, they've set up a, an attraction, you know, a tourist attraction, like you can see the thing if you go down to Tucson and stuff. Okay, so it's that kind of thing. And they're offering views off into the distance of something. You pay a dollar and a half, and they'll let you look at this thing. And people stop, and some of them see Xanadu, and some of them see Eden, and some of them see something they can't really describe. And some of them just see the desert and demand their money back. Mm-hmm. And, and 
the guys who've set up the scam are oblivious to the fact that they're doing anything except trying to get money from anybody. That's a story that has stayed with me for years. It's escapist in, I think, the very best sense in that it opens up a new vista. But it's also a story that, if you think about it, it's all about seeing the beauty in the world. It's all about how beauty is in the eye of the beholder, much broader than that, I think. Um, I have often seen things and thought, oh, a miracle of rare device. That's what that is, a miracle of rare device. So, So I don't know, how would you classify that story? It was a pulp story. It appeared in one of the pulp science fiction magazines. It's a little nothing story. And yet... In it, it's got whole worlds enclosed. So I see escapism as, I mean, I'm, I would never try to rehabilitate the term. That's hopeless. But I do think there, that escapism can be kind of a good thing. So. Well, it, it depends on, I think, who you're, who's, re, who's the reader. If we would assume, if we would all agree that The Grapes of Wrath is a great literary work, and some people might not, um, then you would say, if I'm a rich guy sitting in Malibu reading about these Okies trying to make it out of their impoverished background and get to a life that is, has some meaning, um, that's escapism. I can go read about those little trashy people. It means nothing to me. So it depends on how you look at, at the escape. So you'd say, well, that for me, that the rich guy who has a zillion dollars reading about these these people who could never even touch his life is a, would be escaping to go read about these these poor people. So I don't, I don't know how you really uh, look at escapism. I want to know, Connie, what it, somebody tell me what Facebook is. Here's, here, first, first, you have to understand, I, run, I, I have a, um, a, a, a multi-million dollar cancer research laboratory funded. I never use a computer. I don't even know how to turn the thing on. I did, mainly I, just to do emails and because my publishers and, and publicists and agents and people like that, you have to communicate with them. But um, it, it's, it's just an assigned task to me. It's just, you know, if, 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 I, if I can afford to have somebody go do it, then they do that and I do something else that I know how to do better. And so they could be, they, could, they know how to do that better than me, and I know how to splice genes better than them, so it, it works out great. It, it, works out, it works out great. And their job is just as important as my job. Mine's not more important than theirs at all. So, but Facebook, what, what, I mean, I don't get it. When I, when I said, when, I, when you said it was, it was not, what was, you said it's not, I said it was something, and you said it's not. I don't remember. It, it's, not a, it's not a skate. So is that the people, because in looking at it, that's the way I, since I don't use computers, I'm looking at it, well, that's how you escape from the world. You go and yeah, no, play on this and no, stuff, no, no, but no, maybe no, I'm wrong. Well, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know. How do we, let's not get off. This is not even the subject, but yeah, t- tell no, me no, what I it is. No, I think it is a subject. I think it is a subject because you, you studied the Native American storytelling. We're now, we've got a new device for storytelling now, and Facebook is it. And people are, the way people use it is really fascinating because um, I, some people use it, it, it broadens their world considerably. My daughter is one of those people, I'm a political junkie, she never knows what's going on. And I usually have to call her like twice a week and say, okay, here's what's going on. And, in, and now she always knows. 
because all of her friends are posting stuff about politics and and having endless discussions and also wanting to follow her adventures as she can't get her costume ready for the play and other people and she's following other people's adventures as they broke their arm and or lost it somewhere and and it's all really interesting and it's and it's cross so, so people are telling stories and people who you would not usually find huddled around the campground together are telling stories because young and old are, are following people's Facebook and following each other's you know, postings and people are sometimes incredibly indiscreet and have really interesting postings because they tell stuff that they really shouldn't have told. They kind of forgot they were on the computer and thousands of people would know and this would go viral somehow. Um, and all those things. But I think maybe there's a real, maybe somebody should look at, somebody should write a doctoral thesis on that on, on Facebook as the new storytelling and, and maybe look at it as in terms of uh, what do we do when we have a new opportunity to tell stories. <laughs> I'm going to introduce one more topic, okay? I'm not the moderator, but something else I've been thinking about. So, um, I play one in the grotto. Um, so, uh, in McSweeney's did this uh, collection. They've done a few. And I can't remember the exact title. McSweeney's Collection of Amazing Tales or something, right? And the first one, have any of you seen this? It's like uh, um, literary authors writing, you know, uh, not the stories they usually write, okay? The first collection had an essay from, how do I say his name? Shabon? Shabon? That guy. Michael. Michael C. Him. Shabon. He had an essay where he described the literary short story as this. And I'm paraphrasing. I'm moving. All my books are in cardboard boxes. But he said uh, something like, the literary short story today is a story where nothing happens and the character then has a small epiphany. (laughs) Yeah. And so when I was thinking, like, genre versus literary, like, okay, Damn! Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna die at this, right? Like if that's what we do. Um, but then at the same time, I don't think he's wrong necessarily. But like, if that's if those are our tools, it seems like it's sort of like a, a harder task in a way, you know. Well, you know, an alien and some murder seems to like just give me an amplifier to crank my volume up. And I don't know. I just want to talk about like. Uh, what is the innate payoff? Is it about the mechanical reward of a writer figuring out what's happening in the plot? Or is the payoff for a reader about finding out something about a person they care about in a story? I don't think, obviously, that they're um, mutually mutually exclusive. But um, I don't know. Let's talk about that. (laughs) Tonight on the next show. Hi. I don't know. These things are all too high-powered for, for me. Um, if, when I read, I read for enjoyment. And so I'm not reading to try and, and find the meaning of life. Um, it was like an argument. I had an argument one time with a writer friend of mine, and we were arguing about the purpose of writing, and, and he was just going and on and on about the meaning of life and that sort of stuff. I said, man, wait a minute, man. I, I save lives for a living. 
So let's 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 put this stuff on the right level here, brother. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this, this, let's just do that before you go off on your on your horse and and, and talk about how important uh, something is. So I, I'm I'm not sure that that I have an answer um, for what you've asked, but I I, I certainly don't look at anything. Um, that I read, unless it's nonfiction. If I'm looking at non reading nonfiction, then I may be looking for a recipe in there for life, or I may be looking at at something that's going to give me some knowledge. Uh, but if I'm reading fiction, I'm almost always reading for enjoyment. And if I'm reading nonfiction, that's where I'm looking for the meaning of life. And I th- I think. Not everybody is necessarily like that, but I'm never looking for the meaning of life in the fiction I read. Um, I think it's, it's related to what you like that that McSweeney's issue where you had quote unquote literary writers who. It was a bad book too. The stories I didn't think. They were really. Bad. The intro essay was interesting. <laughs> um, but w- when I was thinking about this, this. Salon, one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, so it, if literary and genre, different genres are, are sort of a, a marketing creation of the publishing industry, um, st- they've, they've had staying power and they, they mean something to people. Um, but, you know, how do, how do writers get slotted into those, those different boxes and, and how does it affect them once they're, they're in it? Um, and I, I was sort of thinking about that because I was thinking in terms of the there there are literary writers now like like Michael Chabon who who are you know dabbling in, in genres but that's been happening for a long time um, you know Graham Greene wrote science fiction and mysteries and thrillers and spy stories and um, John Updike wrote one or two sci-fi novels and um, you know there, you come up with a lot of examples Salman Rushdie's written all kinds of stuff. Um, and and is that a particular freedom of of somebody who's labeled as a, as a literary writer? I guess I guess I'm curious to ask ask um, Connie and um, and Robert. Like, if do you, do you feel boxed in? Like, in terms of your audience expectations, are you you write a certain kind of story? If you're writing a C.J. Floyd story, like he can't sit in his room and think about love. Like, that's. <laughs> it, <laughs> Um, or not? Like, is that, that not a problem? Yeah, no. Uh, no. Uh, in fact, um, I fell in love with science fiction when I was a kid, and then um, really f- I was very lucky because after all the Heinlein juvena- juveniles, which is what people usually start with, and they're great, um, I discovered the year's best collections by Judith Merrill and Anthony Boucher and... and uh, Robert P. Mills, and they were consciously trying to expand the definition of science fiction at that point. So you had stories by Ted Sturgeon side by side with things by John Collier and Graham Greene and and Shirley Jackson and and Mildred Klingerman and Kit Reed and all these marvelous, marvelous writers doing a whole array of different kinds of approaches to science fiction and different kinds of stories. And um, and I I set out to write, I set out to be a writer. And I loved science fiction, so I wrote science fiction stories. But I always had it in the back of my mind that if I ever had something I wanted to say that I couldn't say in a science fiction story, I was ready to leave the field and go write what I wanted to say. I have never left, ever. 
and I have found the readership, as Ursula Le Guin points out in her New Yorker article, she feels that the science fiction reader is one of the best readers out there, the most intelligent, the most sophisticated, the most and aware of irony and, and of all the clever tricks you're playing, uh, they get them all. And so they're a very satisfying audi audience to play to. But, um, uh, and of course, you're always playing to an audience, whether you know it or not. Because as John Gielgud said one time, acting is nothing but the art of trying to keep a large group of people from coughing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that goes for writing also. Uh, and so, but I, I feel that when, when you asked what the emotional pay, what the payoff was, I want an intellectual payoff. I want an emotional payoff. I want to cry through the last 60 pages of the book. I want, in fact, in, in the best stories, um, like the movie Dream Child, say, I cried, I think, from the credits on. I just cried through the whole thing and was still crying and mopping up my tears with my skirt when it was over. <laughs> It was very thought-provoking. I learned all kinds of things I didn't know. I, I got a huge emotional payoff. Um, and I think it's very interesting that when, at, you know, remember the millennium when they were doing all those lists of the 100 best books and stuff? And the, the list that the, I can't think who came up with that. Um, great Modern Classics or something came up with a list. And Ulysses was the top book. And then everybody was mad about this list. So, so then the fans of reading came up with a book, and Lord of the Rings was at the top of their list. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, Lolita was in the top ten of both lists. What does that tell you? That tells you that you can have it all. You can have the emo I cried through the last, oh, 300 pages of Lolita. Um, and I, I found it, an incre which people are always telling me is a comedy but. No, it's not. It's a tragedy. It's Beauty and the Beast with the real ending. And, um, it, and it had, and I think about Lolita all the time. It has new insights and new interesting things that I learned from it all these years after my reading it. So I think the best books can do all of it. But of course, not everybody's writing a masterpiece. So, you know, you have to get. You have to try to get as much as you can. And, and I think when you're writing, what matters to you the most, identifying with characters, caring about characters, making people cry through the last 80 pages is one of my top priorities, because that's one of my top priorities when I read. Uh, but I also I try to put in everything that I want from books. And I think for some people, I think for Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov, they were absolutely fascinated by the science. And they wanted to communicate that love of science and how cool it is. And when people say that their cardboard, that their characters are cardboard, they're missing the point. Their human characters are cardboard. Their science is the real character. The spaceship in Rendezvous with Rama, and the robots in iRobot. Those are the real characters, and they're great because that's where the emotional intensity is. So, I don't, I don't see it as a either-or yeah. situation. Um, can I, oh, you, you say what you're going to say No, I, well, I, I think the question was, do you feel boxed in by, by writing, um, you know, about the same characters over a writing genre fiction? My answer would be, uh, would be no, I, I can always make up some new characters or I can always surround that character with a supporting cast and, and let them take the lead. So I don't ever feel boxed in by writing genre fiction. ask the audience because Nick Brown kind of he was the the collective brain 
of the room. Did, was there any question that you had that Nick Brown didn't posit or that the, the members of the panel? Uh, we have time for one. So it better be freaking good. Oh, um, so Alexander has a question and Brad has a question. Do you guys want to thumb wrestle? We can do both. We'll just be really concise with our answer. Okay, so let's start with Brad. Okay. We touched on a little bit the issue of the way the marketing and everything happened. This is kind of directed at Connie, who is on my Mount Rushmore of science fiction, by the way. But Thank you. Mount Rushmore. Thank you. Uh, Doomsday Book was genius. Thank so here's my question. Let's take something like Doomsday Books or one of your other books. When it's put on the shelf and when they write the little thing on the flyleaf and they say, this is a book about, why is it different or is it different for a science fiction book versus a literary fiction book? Um, well, it's, you know, it, in, my, in recent years, people have, the, my publishers have decided that I am a crossover writer. Uh, it, it, which means they'd, they'd like me to they'd like to market me to ladies book groups basically and so because they buy lots of copies and they buy hardbacks um, and so so they have gone to incredible lengths to pretend that they're not science fiction books so if you look on the cover I never have I never have um, uh, blurbs from science fiction authors they're always blurbs from na- mainstream authors the covers they go out of their way and they go out of their way they do a all kinds of bizarre things. They go out of their way to to not have anything look like a comedy. To say nothing of the dog, which is a Victorian comedy, has a black cover. <laughs> I mean, it's really depressing. It looks like Winesburg, Ohio, or something, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, so they do all these things to try to 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 try to market it once they've got it. But but everyone knows it's science fiction. <laughs> I know it's science fiction, and the blurb will tell you. I mean, the the copy, you know, the copy matter will so tell you that. So. Do, do your books deserve a different kind of description of what they are compared to the way a typical literary novel is described? And is that fair? In a fair world, probably, but who cares? I mean, <laughs> it's not a fair world, and, it, and your readers find you anyway, is my feeling that, you know, they, that's how I find, I don't, you know, I don't go to different genre sections in the, in the library. I go on people's advice. You know, and what they what they love, and the ones that oh, you have to read this is really good. So I've, I'm right now reading Proust. I just started Proust. He's so good. Oh my god, uh, a writer with real potential, I think. So. so I I I, just, I, would, I would just like you guys to talk a little bit a little bit more about the this kind of rampant discrimination against genre. And especially this notion that that it it um, somehow I, I feel people feel like it's not close enough to the human experience, you know. And 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 I, I mean I'm a filmmaker, and I, I experienced that in film. I mean I mean just look at what the Oscars, you know. I mean year after year after year, what the Oscars go to. I think it's drama. it's it's yeah, exactly drama, you know. And it's kind of a sad state of affairs. But you know I make I make pop culture docs. And I go to documentary film festivals all the time, and I can't even begin to tell you the discrimination that I get, you know, for making pop culture doc, as opposed to, you know, it's also always, always the social justice documentarians that are quote unquote important. Well, I think that there's important, you know, zombie movies, 
and important. I mean, seriously, you know, there's. So let's. If I could just hear your thoughts on this, I'd be curious. In like thirty words yeah. or less. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Somebody have 30 words? <laughs> I, I sang in a church. I sang in a church choir for um, 30 years. Um, the solos consider themselves far superior to the altos. Uh, I always sum things, questions like that up in three words. Always, because I've been asked it before. Life's not fair. <laughs> Uh, For me, it's always about the amount of emotion I can put into a character. And so this is my equation. You know, what story do you care about more? An 18-wheeler just ran over my robot. An 18-wheeler just ran over my dog. An 18-wheeler just ran over my daughter. And that's, you know, the volume that is allowed in that last one counts for something. We're, We're humans. No matter how interested I am in a robot or a dog, I'm not going to care about it as much as a human that I care about. And so that's part of it for me. Oh, my God, I'm starting something at the very end. <laughs> 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 at the end Crap. But Nick is going to sum it up. He's going to totally sum it up. Buy some shitty old man. Um... I don't. I don't know, man. You know, there, the, the the awards. You know, is genre not as close to the human experience? Is genre? Literary. And I think that's BS. I'm sorry. Is human experience the only you know criteria? No, that's a good question. Stories can be enjoyed in so many different ways. I agree. I agree with that. Absolutely. This is the death match. Yeah. You're implying that that liter that mainstream is the only one that deals with the human experience, and and if you're going to have you can have the 18 wheeler run over your robot, and if it's the bicentennial man, or it's it's the 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 uh, what are they called in in uh, Blade Runner the the replicants the rep Blade Runner is meant to make you cry the the yeah you care just as much because it's a different. It's a different presentation. It's using a different set of symbols for the human experience. It's all, all of it, all genre, all literature is all the human experience. I'd like to jump in here to defend the dog story. I don't have a daughter, but I have a dog. Um, So they say, like, stop with people wanting more. And and so you guys have been phenomenal, and I'm so glad we got to the bloodletting at the very end so that we didn't have to see it through. But um, all these books from these wonderful authors, a lot of a sampling are for sale back there, and you guys will sign in blood. (laughs) And um, thank you all for being here. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, 
and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.